We're going to be in John and our study of the feeding of the 5,000 once again. Only I'd ask you to keep your Bibles closed for a minute, if you would. Because uh, I want to begin our time not in John, but in the Psalms. But I really don't want you to turn there either. If you would, I'd like you to leave your Bibles closed for just a minute. In my reading and preparation, this psalm literally leaped off the page. And I believe that in a nutshell, this captures the essence of the issue when we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. And so what I'd ask you to do is uh, just sort of put your mind in in, uh, neutral. Uh, That shouldn't be hard for most of us. And uh, meditate on this, and maybe we'll get it in a nutshell. <laughs> get it in, in a nutshell? You, you got Okay, good. I know, don't go into comedy. But I really would, uh, I want this in your mind. And I trust that by the power of the Spirit, it will move from your mind to your heart. Just listen. Psalmist writes this. You have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net or prison. You have laid afflictions or or burdens upon our loins. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We have gone through fire and through water. Now, beloved, if you have lived at all in this life, I don't have a doubt in my mind that you have experienced what the psalmist is writing about. Let's go through it again and and just let it sink in. You have tried us as silver is tried. Silver is tried and tested by going through the fires, by getting heated up. You've been in situations like that, haven't you, where you felt like you were getting burned and the heat was getting turned up and it caused you anxiety and stress? Have you felt like that? Anybody of you felt like that? How about this? You have brought us into the net or, or into the prison. A prison where, where there, there's a tight little compartment and the, the bars have closed shut. Or a net where you're tangled up and you can't get out. There's nowhere to go. You ever felt like that? You have laid afflictions or burdens upon our loins. A burden. If any of you ever carry something heavy, it's it's oppressive. It weighs you down. You ever felt like that? There just seems to be no escape. I, I love the graphicness of the psalmist. Listen to this. You have caused men to ride over our heads. What happens when your head gets run over? I mean, in this context, it'd be horses or chariots. 
I don't think it would really matter to the one being run over. It'd be about the same. But what happens when you get your head run over? You get cut. You get bruised and bloodied. I got to believe that that kind of pain that he's talking about hurts so bad, you'd beg for it to go away. And if it wouldn't go away, you'd probably find yourself begging to die in order to find some escape. We've gone through fire, fire burns, and through water. Now, I don't think you people here in the South get the idea of going through water. Well, this is Northeast talking. When you dive into water that's so cold, it shocks you and takes your breath away. And the strength just saps out of your body. Have you ever had that happen? You dive into an ice-cold river or something like that, or the ice breaks under you? That's the idea. If you've lived life at all, I think you can empathize with the psalmist. Sometimes, beloved, you and I get slapped around and buffeted so hard that we feel like someone has literally run over our heads. And it hurts. And when that happens, what we cry out is basically something like that. I want out of here. I want out of this circumstance. Get me out of this situation. I can't stand it. I can't take it. God, where are you? It's so easy to doubt God, uh, to question even the existence of God when you and I are feeling things like this. You know the situations. Maybe a daughter comes home and, and announces those terrible words, I'm pregnant, or, or a son. We get a phone call from the police and it's drugs, or, or a boss says, I'm sorry, we've got to let you go. So, but you don't know my situation, the, the bills, my, my wife is, I'm sorry, we've got to let you go. Or you get the phone call and it's the doctor and he says, I'm sorry. And you're braced for that news. And beloved, those are impossible, impossible circumstances. And when they come, that's what we cry out. But beloved, there's a question I want you to focus in on. And that's, who's the you in this song? You have tested us. You have trapped me in this net. You have put this burden upon me. You have put me through the fire and through the water. You have let people run over my head, and I don't like it. And who is the you? Well, the psalmist begins this section with, For thou, O God. Those are hard words, beloved. Those are hard words. We would much rather, when an impossible circumstance, when a trying circumstance comes our way, we would much rather blame people. You did this to me, Robert. It's easy. 
Or we'd much rather blame Satan. You did this to me, Satan. But you and I have got to enter into the very honest words of the psalmist. You, O God, have done this. It may have been a person that was the instrument. It may have been Satan that was the instrument. But the truth is that ultimately it was God who has done this to us. For, beloved, there are two very important truths that you and I must own. And that is one, that God can do anything. He is sovereign. He rules this universe. And two, God loves me. And therefore, if God can do anything and God loves me, then God could have stopped what has happened to me. He has chosen not to do so. Therefore, there is purpose in what is happening. And there is the purpose, beloved. He will teach us even the lessons that we would rather not learn. And those are hard words to swallow. Our God will teach us even the lessons that we don't want to learn. He has a goal. And that goal is not to make us comfortable. That goal is to see us conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. That by necessity means that some very ugly things about us have to change. And human nature is prone to see itself in very rosy eyes. And so sometimes God has to chip away at us and strip away at us because there are parts of us that are very crusty. And we don't really see those things about us. As Carol Mayall says, sometimes the love of God comes in a very painful package. But I want you to enter in here to the purpose. And that's found in the final words that the psalmist had to say. He said, God, you've tested us. You're the one that's tried us. You're the one that put us into prison and laid the burdens and allowed the men to run over our heads. You're the one that put us through the fire and water. But listen to how he ends, beloved. This is awesome. But. See, the contrast. The awesome contrast of my circumstance with the purpose of God but you have brought us into an abundant place that's the purpose God is the author of impossible circumstances beloved but he is the author of impossible circumstances with a purpose, and that is to bring us to the place of abundance. And the place of abundance is himself. It is a person. And so he will not necessarily change the circumstances. Because he knows that when you and I are driven to his own person, it is there that we will find all that we need. And sometimes those impossible circumstances will not change. Because you see, the bottom line is this is what God wants. He wants us to cry, not I want out. But he wants us to cry, I want you, God. I need you, God. 
That is exactly the lesson that Jesus has been trying to teach the disciples in John chapter 6. And I say trying because they're not doing a very good job of learning it. And lest we point fingers, isn't that us? We don't do a very good job of learning that. I mean, it is hard to come to the end of your resources. It is hard for you and I to to admit that we're weak. It's hard for you and I to fail and to admit that we fail. I mean, that's why I'm glad I never fail. (laughs) That's a joke. You already knew that was a joke. It's hard for you and I, beloved, to walk by faith. When all this turmoil is breaking out and we see these circumstances hedging us in to where the psalmist says, it's a prison, it's a net, it's a trap running over my head. It's it's hard to see God sometimes. And we say things like we shared last week, God, just tell me what you're doing and I'll walk by faith. But that's not faith. That's sight. It is very hard to be empty, beloved. Very, very hard to be empty. But he empties us with a purpose. And that's so he can fill us with himself. I hope you have begun to see already as we've gone back and forth through these pages that this is the issue in John chapter 6. The issue is not feeding 5,000 people. The issue is not Jesus demonstrating his power with dunamis. There is semeon. This is a sign. And there is a lesson. And I'm so glad Jesus did this. Because it gives me some understanding into the life that you and I all live. Let's open our Bibles there. John chapter 6. Our Father... As we break open these pages, we don't trust our own minds to be able to understand the things of God. You are too big. We don't trust a human vessel to be able to teach. These things are of God. What we trust is your spirit and your perfect word, and that you would illumine our minds to be able to receive the incredible truth that is before us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's set the context briefly, bring ourselves up to date. You remember we said that Jesus, this feeding of the 5,000 really began with Jesus sending the 12 disciples out. And he gave them power to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cast out demons. And they went out and did that for the space of some six to eight months. They are now returning to Jesus on the west side of the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And you can imagine how they're coming back. Like excited little kids. This power, Jesus, you won't believe it. We healed, we raised, we we did, we cast out, we did. You know, they're wired, man. They are wired. But Jesus has himself heard some other kind of news that grieved him deeply. John the Baptist has been beheaded. And 
there is a need for solitude for Jesus in his own heart and for his solitude with his twelve disciples. And, and they're tired, they're weary, they, they need this, this time together. But we saw in the text in another passage that there's so many people they don't even have time to eat. So Jesus says, we're getting away from here. And he hops them into a boat and they journey across over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And they get there and go up onto a mountain. And they have their intimate time. The crowds, however, have locked into a good thing. So they head up immediately by foot, a distance of nine miles, up and around the Sea of Galilee. And they gather people with them as they go from village to village. And the crowds that were heading south for the Passover no doubt did an about face. And by the time the crowd begins to arrive at that mountain, there are 5,000 men. We don't know how many women, children, families that are traveling. Estimates have ranged anywhere from 15 to 40,000 people. Jesus sees this crowd coming to them. The very crowd they're trying to get away from. And he has compassion on them. And he says, before he comes down off that mountain, he turns to Philip and he says, Hey, Philip, how much is it going to cost to feed these people? And then he leaves Philip there to fester and goes down and spends all day healing the sick and teaching them of the kingdom. Until it is dark, the people are hungry, there's no place to get any food. And I trust you remember last time we said, therefore, it's biblical to teach until it's dark and everyone is hungry. Philip at this point is very perplexed. How do we get out of this? Now, please understand at this point that Jesus could have fed these people. Right? Jesus is God. And all he had to do is say, food, and there would have been food. 30,000 bagels and kefilte fish. He had done it before with the Israelites traveling through, right? Rained manna every day. But if he did that, the disciples never would have learned what he is so desperately wanting to teach them. A lesson that, to be honest with you, when we start to get into the sermon after this event... Some of you will probably go home before we finish it. It is incredible what Jesus wants here. And if he had done this, if he had just worked this miracle, they never would have learned it. So Jesus, beloved, is the one who has authored this circumstance. He has dumped it right in Philip's lap. Why? (laughs) To get Philip to run to him. But Philip is a, is a human, or human. When we taught our kids phonics, they used to call it a human. So Philip, being true to his human nature, looks to his own resources. We said that men look three ways. They look inward to their own resources. I will accomplish this. We grit our teeth. Or we look outward to our friends and others' resources. There's somebody out there with, with more money, with gr- a stronger will and, and more strength, and we'll look to them and lean on them. But if these two resources fail, there is a third way that men look, and that is earthward. And what we meant by that was let's just find a way of escape. Diversion. Let's, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Now, beloved, which one of these ways 
of coping did Philip try to use? Well, we saw from his answer to Jesus, 200 denarii is not enough even to give them a snack. And the implication behind that, of course, was we don't have the money. So where, obviously, was Philip looking? He was looking inward to his own resources. He said, we can't do it. This was an impossible circumstance. Now, that's where we left off last time. We're going to pick it up today from Matthew, from that account. So let's turn over there to Matthew chapter 14. We've seen a very perplexed Philip as Jesus dumped this circumstance in his lap. Today we're going to see some despairing disciples, as Philip in turn puts it in their lap. Matthew chapter 14. Jesus went forth, and you remember we said last time that's the proper translation. Your translation might say he came out of the boat. You can get the tape from last week and deal with that. Jesus went forth, he came down off that mountain, seeing the great multitude, was moved with compassion towards them, and healed their sick. And when it was evening, verse 15, his disciples came to him. Now stop right there. There's a great insight. In John chapter 6, Jesus directed the question to Philip. Where are we going to get the food to feed these people? And how much is it going to cost to buy it? But here in Matthew now, as this day has gone on and Philip has festered, we find at the end of the day, not Philip coming to Jesus, but who? The disciples. What's that tell us? That tells us that Philip went flapping. Right? He, he took the burden that had been laid on him and he went like this with his mouth to others. Can't you just picture him? I mean, this is extra biblical. No charge. But, but you know, you meditate on this. i got to believe this is what happened. i got to believe that the first thing Philip did was go to Judas. Why would he go to Judas? Judas is the treasurer. How much money have we got in the money bag, Judas? Judas says, three days wages, three denarii. Oh, that's not enough. What's Judas' response? What do you need the money for? That's the way all church treasurers operate. What do you want the money for? Right? Isn't that right, Tim? That's right. All right. What do you want the money for? He says, well, you wouldn't understand. And then he goes over to maybe James and John and Peter because they're the inner circle. You can't believe what the master's going to do. He, he wants us to feed these people. No. No, he can't. Yeah, he did. He said it. And then, and then Bartholomew or one of the others or Matthew comes along and says, that's right, I heard it, I heard it. He did say to Philip, we're going to buy food, but we don't have the money. And then can't you hear him as the day's going longer? Doesn't he realize how long he's going? Sound familiar? <laughs> Doesn't he realize we're getting hungry? I got a roast in the oven? Doesn't he care? Besides, there's no place to find food. And so, you can just see them, that this group, they're stirring themselves up with their little words of woe. Their dialogue of doubt. Their tales of trouble. Their conversation of calamity. You learn that stuff when you go to preacher school. 
You know, they teach you to do that, you know. So everybody can go, ooh, like that one right there. And finally, they can stand it no longer. So what do they do? Now they come as a group to him. Negative critical spirits always come in a group. Because there's support. And they go to Jesus, and they try to, and I love this. (laughs) Look at this verse. Matthew 14, verse 15. It's evening, the disciples come to him, and look what they say. This, Lord, is a desert place. Who took them there in the first place? Jesus. Uh, Lord, it is late. Do you realize what they're doing? They are telling the one who knows all things <laughs> that it's a desert place and it's late. That's kind of like telling Aunt Jemima how to make pancakes. You know, I'm sure Jesus didn't need to know this. they then add to the people send these people away so that they have a problem they need to go get some food for themselves you gotta love this beloved in their humanness what they're really saying is is Lord you botched this one and I want you to see the word send you might want to circle that in your Bible and in the margin write imperative it's a command the twelve are now commanding the Creator, send these people away. And you got to love the Lord's response in the next verse. Oy vey, you guys, how could I have been such a mashugana? That's Hebrew for crazy person. I didn't even realize how long-winded I was. I can't believe how insensitive I was to their needs. Thank you for reminding me. Send them away. Right? No. Beloved... Who was the one who had compassion on these people up on that mountain when he saw them coming? It was Jesus. Who's the one who initiated this whole idea of food? Jesus. You know, we're dealing with 12 people, 12 humans, and the God-man. What had they gone to this desert place for in the first place? To get solitude from the very people that are now coming. What does humanity do when people block their goals? (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) Steamroll. Yeah, they tend to do that. I don't believe that feeding these people was in any way in the disciples' minds. In fact, I really believe that their motive for sending, you know, it sounds like the motive for sending them away is a good one. Lord, they need to go get something to eat. I don't buy that for a minute. I believe it's really a hint of selfishness. Lord, they need to get out of here. They are blocking our goal, and it's gone on all day, and it's time for this to stop. Send them away. Now, I want to ask you a question here, and that is, which of these methods are now the disciples functioning under? Are they looking inward to their own resources and saying, we will pull this off, we will feed these people? No. 
Are they looking to other people's resources and saying, let's round up everybody's resources and we'll pull this off? Is that what they're doing? No. This is their method right here of coping. We got an impossible circumstance. We cannot meet it. So therefore, let's just get rid of the impossible circumstance. Let's avoid it. Let's pretend that it's not there. Let's just get rid of it. Out of sight, out of mind. And beloved, i got to tell you, this is, uh, to, to my way of thinking, and with the experiences I have had in dealing with God's people, this is the primary method of coping for God's people. Let's just deny the whole thing. Let's just run away from this situation. Let's, if it's in a church situation, let's just leave the church and go to another church. If it's the pastor, I had enough with these people, I know now what Moses felt like, you stiff-necked bunch, and I leave. See? And this is what we do. We take our ball, we go home, and we run away. If it's a job, we go find another job. If it's a family, we move out of the family and move far, far away. And it's, let's just pretend the whole thing didn't happen. Some people do this internally. They will just pretend that the impossible circumstance never began. You ask them about it. Oh, I don't have a problem with that. I don't know what you're talking about. Some people will stuff it so deep they don't even remember it. You have to sort of pry it out of them. And they refuse to enter into the reality of what has happened. Now I have a question. Why do we do this? Why do we run from an impossible circumstance that has come into our lives? Why? Isn't it because that the very fact that it's impossible hurts? That my goals have now been blocked? My dreams have now been shattered? My expectations are now not going to be met? Nothing can change this? And that hurts. And the nature of humanity, beloved, is to recoil from pain. That's it. Pain is no fun. And it's normal to, to recoil from pain. Please understand that. I mean, if I, if I took you home to my house and turned up the burner until it was red hot and took your hand and put it on the burner and you said, isn't this lovely? Something would be major big time wrong with you. We don't like that. We don't like pain, and that's normal to recoil. But we've got to enter into that circumstance of life with the truth of what we know, dear people. That my God is sovereign. My God can do anything. So he could have stopped this impossible circumstance. 
He has therefore chosen to allow it. Why would he do that? Because he loves me. And there are some lessons that I will never learn apart from an impossible circumstance. And you and I need to remember our God's character. And that his goal is to bring us to the place of abundance. To himself. And when you and I then try to run away from these circumstances, what we're doing is short-circuiting God's purpose. And we will run, and we will run, and we will run, and we will deny and avoid, and we will never learn this lesson that God is trying to teach us. And what you and I need to do, beloved, is embrace it. We need to let it accomplish what it was intended to accomplish in us in the first place. We need to receive it with thanksgiving. And say, Father, this hurts right now. I don't understand why this is happening, but I know who you are, and I know your love for me. I know who I am. I'm your child, so therefore there is purpose in this. I don't see it yet, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to stay right where I am. I'm not running away. C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone, beloved. Not chance's megaphone. Not Satan's. But God's. It is so easy for us to blame others and blame Satan for a lot of God's work. We dare not do that. God allows these things to bring us to the place of abundance, and that is really the lesson of 2 Corinthians 12. We looked at that last week. Let's look at it one more time. You know the passage. We won't go into a lot of it. Father gave Paul something that hurt. A messenger of Satan? That's what he called it. But ultimately it came from Father. Father allowed it. Paul does not like this circumstance because it hurts. When it hurts, what do you do? You look to your own resources. They don't, he didn't have it this time. He looked to others' resources, no doubt, and had the church pray and all that, and nothing works there. So what do you do? Father, take it away. Get rid of this thing. And Father's wonderful message to Paul was, Son, I can't do that. This is the best thing for you, my child. I know this one hurts, Paul, but when you receive this one, it's going to keep you weak. And when you're kept weak, you're going to be kept dependent upon me. And when you're dependent upon me, you're going to know me in a way you never could have known me before. You're going to know my grace like you could never know it before. And what's Paul's response? I want you to read his response. Because to the unbelieving world, this response is bizarre. This response of Paul is neurotic. People could look at it, if they don't know God, they'd say this is masochistic. 
This is absurd. Look at it. Gloriously absurd is Paul. Verse 9, my grace is sufficient. My strength, God says, will be made perfect in your weakness, Paul. Paul's response, well then, gladly am I going to glory in this thing, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And therefore I will take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities. For when I am weak, then I will be strong. Paul says, I'm going to glory in suffering. Wow. He becomes a cheerleader for any calamity that comes into his life. I don't know what you're doing, God, but I know you. And I know it's going to be special. Probably the most famous modern example of this is a lady named Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny was a member of our church back in California. And I've heard from her own lips when she was asked the question, what if you could do it all over again? What if you could go back in time and, and you dive into that water and the neck never breaks? And from her own lips, no way. If, if I could change it, I wouldn't. I would go through it again. I'd let my neck break. Because I know God in a way I never could have known Him without what I've been through. Many of you know the ministry of Patsy Claremont. You've heard her on, on the radio, or if you've, you've read her books, or listened to her tapes. Patsy was in our home several years ago. Wonderful lady. I had the opportunity, and I put the same question to her. Everybody says Patsy Claremont is such a special lady. Patsy Claremont, what makes Patsy such a special lady? First words out of her mouth. The tears. The tough times. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Beloved, that's what God has done, and I won't say it's done. That's what God is doing in my life. He has brought me over the years some circumstances that are utterly impossible. To be honest with you, things that I cannot change. Though there has been no small amount of trying. And I've tried to change some of those things. I've enlisted others' aid to try and change some of those things. In the foolishness of my youth, I tried to run away from a lot of those things. I tried to run away from God, run to alcohol, run to drugs, run to relationships, and, and use these very same coping mechanisms. And I'm beginning to learn that the first step is not to run from Him or run from that circumstance or to even run to others. But the first step is to run right to Him and say, Father, I don't like this, but I know You. Now, as I am learning to do that, I'll be honest with you, my glorious Father, our glorious Father, has worked some neat things. He has actually changed some of those impossible circumstances. But I will be equally as honest and tell you that my Father, our Father, has also not changed some of them. And to be honest with you, I know there are some of them that he will never change. 
There are some things that, that happened in my past I will take to the grave. They cannot be changed. But I now, instead of fighting against them, receive them. And even though it hurts, you let them accomplish what they were intended to accomplish. Because when they hurt, you say, Father, I can't handle this. And you run to him. If you don't do that, what you will do, I guarantee you, what you will do is you will build a castle around yourself to protect yourself from any other impossible circumstances. And you will become a major controller of your life and everyone else's life around you. But as one who has done that, I will share with you, beloved, that that castle is effective. It works. It keeps people out. But do you know what that castle also is? It is a prison. And you imprison yourself. And this beautiful, beautiful creation of God that Jesus wants to make you cannot get out of that prison. And so our God will fight against you to tear down that wooden castle of control that you're building. And it is just wooden. There's no foundation to it. And he'll let some impossible circumstances in. He'll put the burden on your back. He'll run over your head to cause you to tear that castle down and run into his arms instead and let him be father. Let his arms protect you. And let his arms provide if the resource that you need to endure the circumstances come. I think the words of the psalmist can only sum it up. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart is growing faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. Lead me to the rock that is higher than my hubby. Lead me to the rock that is higher than my job. Lead me to the rock that is higher than my church, higher than my pastor, higher than my own strength and grit and determination. Lead me to the only rock there is. The bottom line, beloved, is really very simple. God doesn't want us to find an answer to impossible circumstances. He really doesn't. He wants us to find the answer. And the answer is a person who's called the place of abundance. There we'll find the great exchange where we exchange our weakness for his strength and our pain for his presence. Let's go back to Matthew 14 and we're going to see it happen at least begin to happen.
The disciples come to him and they say, This is a desert place. The time is late. It's growing dark. Send those people away. Let's just get rid of this impossible circumstance. But Jesus says unto them, They need not depart. You hear that? Sorry, guys. You're going to keep this one. And you've got to love this. You give them to eat. Did you hear that? You who have no money. You who have no ATM machine. You who have no grocery store to go to, even if you had the money. You feed them. You're going to keep this one. I'm not going to let you get away from this one. Why is Jesus doing that? To get them to look to him. You see, obviously, there is a resource that they have not looked to yet. It's been with them all along. Right? You know what this is like? This is kind of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Remember the story of The Wizard of Oz? You've all seen that. When Dorothy's in the tornado, the tornado lifts the house up, the house goes over to this fairy tale land, the house falls down and the wicked witch kills her. The good witch Glenda shows up and takes off the ruby slippers off the witch and puts them onto Dorothy. Dorothy says, how do I get home? And the good witch Glenda says, follow the yellow brick road to trouble. And she follows that yellow brick road looking for Oz. And along the way, she gets all kinds of trouble. Life-threatening trouble. Comes to the end of the movie, and the good witch Glinda says in that annoying little voice, You read the answer all the time. It was always with you. All you got to do is click your slippers and you're home. How dare she call herself good. You realize that? How dare she call herself good? Let that poor girl go through all that trouble when she had the answer all along. I mean, do you realize that? All the good witch had to do was say, put the heels on the kid, say, click your heels, you're home, shortest movie of all time. (laughs) That is not a good witch. That's vicious. It really is. It's vicious. Shame on Hollywood. That's what, you know, like Malcolm Smith says, you know, you got to watch, it's okay to watch TV, but when you watch it, you got to preach right back at it. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's not true. That's the only way to watch TV. It's true. You see, Jesus, you notice I said kind of like the Wizard of Oz? Well, the slippers were always there. Jesus is always there. There's one difference. He tells them he's the answer. All along. What's the problem? They don't look. So he's got to give them a circumstance to force them to look. And that's what's going on. Okay, let's look Look what's happened. Very simply this. They have the resources. They're not looking to the resources. The resources is him. He's the abundant place. Over the last two weeks, what have we seen? We saw, first of all, Philip looked inward said, we don't have the money. Strike one. Today we've seen strike two. Second way to handle this and cope, let's just get rid of the circumstance. Strike two. What do you suppose we're going to see next week? 
Strike three. That's right. As they look to other people's resources. Look right at Matthew. See the next verse. They came to him and said, We've got these five loaves and two fish. That's not what really happened. We're going to look at the other passages and see what really happened next week. But in any event, it is going to be strike three. And that's wonderful because when they're out, what? They can be brought in. When they're empty, they can now be filled. When they're stripped, they can now be clothed. When they're broken, they can now be rebuilt. And they're going to find that God was all they ever really needed in the first place. I want to leave you with one bit of application, and it's this. For this I have Jesus. For this I have Jesus. I pray you would memorize it. I pray you would meditate on it. I pray you would ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, please make this real in my life. I know many of you. And I know what you're going through. I know how some of you struggle with your pasts. And those pasts sometimes are very hard to deal with. They won't go away. Some of you are struggling with your job. Some of you struggle with a spouse. Some of you struggle with a child. Some of you struggle with a boss at work, an authority figure. You have got to own, beloved, that what you are going through is no accident. Our God could have stopped it. Our Daddy God stepped aside and let it happen. Because He loves you. And He wants you to run into His arms. And when you do that, He may remove the impossible circumstance. He may not. But if he does not, you will find him true to his word. He will be all you need. And your first step to your healing in whatever you're going through is to receive. Not to fight against what's going on, but receive it. And say, for this I have Jesus. And when you do that, Jesus is going to say, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be to you what I want to be. And up to now, you just haven't let me. I had a humdinger of an illustration right now that I read in a book that I was going to share with you. But real life is better. Isn't that true? especially the real lives of people we know. Paul and Kim Bird, many of you know them. Young couple just out of college. We just had the privilege of marrying them about four or five months ago. Paul's a professional baseball player. Last year he was in the AAA. They went to camp hoping to get to the majors this year. That's their dream. That's their goal. Their goal got blocked. They got sent down. 
but not to AAA. PEI actually sent down to AA. They not only didn't make it up, they actually went down. What's humanity's first response to something like that? God, what are you doing? I mean, we've committed our lives to you. Not seeing much on your part. You botched this one, Lord. Right? One of the things that they shared with me last year was their struggle with professional sports. See, behind all the glamour is a lot of garbage. When they travel from town to town, there's pornography, there is illicit sex, drugs, alcohol, tremendous pressure to perform, tremendous loneliness. And last year on his triple eighteen, Paul was the only Christian. And he caught a ton of persecution. And a lot of pressure. God proved faithful to it. Well, this year in AA, I got a letter this week from Kim, and she says, we were a little upset at first, but uh, man, what God has done. There are Christians on this team, and Christian wives. And not just Christians and Christian wives, but some Christian brothers and sisters that were struggling. And a lot of what we learned while we were here at Quail Ridge, we have been able to use to minister to these struggling saints. And and it is so exciting. Can you send us more tapes? Can you send us more of, the, of some of the counseling resources? We've got people coming to us, and now we realize what God was doing. He was magnifying our ministry. And now being double A, you don't fly anymore to your games, you ride a bus. And when you ride a bus, it's 9, 10, 12, 13 hours. And some of the unbelievers are coming to sit next to Paul on the bus and say, tell me about this faith you have. And Kim says, wow, who would have thought? That's our father. Our father. Thank you for teaching us lessons that we really don't even want to learn sometimes. Thank you for blocking our goals that hurt sometimes. Thank you for saying no. Thank you for giving us things that we can't handle. Because then we get to run to you and we find that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the very resurrection power of Jesus Christ that is within us. And to you be the praise, the honor, and the glory. Thank you for teaching us, Father, lessons we'd rather not learn. Thank you for conforming us into the image of Jesus. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week we have a crawfish boil. Come comfortably dressed. If you don't feel led in your spirit to do that, uh, 
come nicely dressed, bring a change of clothes. And uh, we will receive those who are nicely dressed and let the judge of all be their judge. And we receive those who are not nicely dressed and let the one who judges be their judge. And we won't judge each other and we'll say it's okay and we'll have a great time. And uh, pray for the team coming home, Julie. They are in Atlanta. May get to Nora. That's great. That's exciting. We'll praise Father for that. Pray for them too. They're going to be tired next couple of days. And uh, any other announcements that we had? Missed anything? Be the church.